distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Susan Hall, the publisher at NLA Publishing. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we're now privileged to call home. I'm very pleased that you've joined us tonight to hear from Nolene Brown as she talks about her new book, Living the 1960s, proudly published by NLA Publishing. We were delighted when Nolene agreed to write this book for us. The 1960s were a significant decade for the National Library. The National Library Act, formally establishing the library, was enacted in the first year of the decade and in 1968, this beautiful building was first opened to the public. It will be celebrating its 50th birthday next year, and our exhibition, 1968 Changing Times, will open in March as part of those celebrations. Not surprisingly, the National Library holds an astounding and diverse collection of material relating to this period, from music and fashion to politics and protest and Nolene's book tells the story of the decade through these items. It's hard to believe that Nolene Brown has been gracing the nation's screens, stages and airwaves since 1959. She appeared in much-loved shows, including the Mavis Bramston Show, The Naked Vicar Show and Graham Kennedy's Blankety Blanks. The Mavis Bramston Show was synonymous with the 1960s, premiering in 1964, it demonstrated both that it was possible to make satirical TV comedy in Australia featuring, Austra featuring Australian issues and characters and that it would find a significant audience. As the first Australian-produced TV comedy series, it became a national success with both critics and viewers. Mavis is therefore considered a milestone in the development of Australian TV. Who better to write living in the 1960s than one of the stars of the show, Nolene Brown? Joining Nolene in conversation this evening is Hugh Mackay, researcher and author of 16 books, 10 of these in the field of social psychology and ethics, and six novels, the most recent of which is the novel Selling the Dream. But before we hear from Nolene and Hugh, I would like to introduce David Kilby. Long-time listeners of ABC Radio Canberra will know David well, as he presented the weekend, breakfast and afternoon shifts on radio for many years. He is well known as a music aficionado and trivia king, and his interest in the lesser-travelled tracks of Australian popular music resulted in the Radio National programme Rare Collections in collaboration with his son, Geordie Kilby. Please join me in welcoming David Kilby as he introduces Living the 1960s. Thanks very much, Susan. After that introduction, I can hardly wait to hear what I've got to say. <laughs> but um, Susan asked me, one of, the, one of the ingredients in this terrific book of, uh, of the Living the 60s is, uh, is a section on music, music in the 60s, because it was really a, an important decade for that. Now, for my sins, um, I'm an associate member of Arrows. Arrows stands for Australian Rock and Roll Old Wankers Society, <laughs> and it's a, a group of performers who uh, were in the business prior to 1962. And they meet every three months in Sydney and, and up in the Gold Coast. And, uh, and we have lunch and talk about old times. But meeting so many of those performers have, has given me a really first-hand idea uh, of what it was like in the pioneering era of the 50s as a, as a pop or rock and roll singer. Rock and roll, of course, emerging in the, in the uh, mid-50s. And people like um, Johnny O'Keefe, Johnny Devlin, Cold Joy, Dig Richards, Allendale, the Deltones, all those, I mean, they really forged what was to become uh, the pop scene in the 60s. It was harder then because, uh, I mean, they had the re recording studios were pretty primitive. The producers were old school. 
I mean, they longed for times past. They couldn't handle rock and roll. Uh, the, the instruments, some of the, some of the uh, pop stars of the time in the 50s made their own instruments. Cole Joy did, made his own guitar from watching Rock Around the Clock. Um, that sort of thing went on. It was hard to buy equipment. And the, uh, and the sound, of course, was, uh, was pretty primitive. The recording studios were primitive. So they were pioneering times. But it changed in the 60s. It changed dramatically. And there's not been, if you think about the, the decades in music, there's not been a, a decade since that had so many different genres of music, if you like. And look, I'll take a couple of minutes to, to just go through them with you. I mean, the, the thing with the, with the 50s artists and the 60s artists and the 70s artists in Australia is that they came through at the ground level. In the early days, it was the dancers. There were dancers several nights a week and there'd be thousand people attending these dancers. And, of course, they started off in a primitive fashion, but as they kept doing gigs, they got better and better. And, of course, then TV came to fruition and you had shows like Bandstand, which pretty much ruled the, ruled the waves as far as pop music was concerned at the end of the 50s and into the 60s. And, of course, other like Six O'Clock Rock and the Johnny O'Keefe show and others followed on. But the new decade brought new equipment. You could buy decent instruments. They had hip, younger producers producing the records. And the confidence was gained in the 60s. Confidence to, to have records released by Australian artists overseas. Almost not unheard of, but not common earlier on. The 60s saw that um, burgeon. And also it led to 60s artists travelling, having the confidence to, to tackle the overseas markets. We'd always suffered from, you know, the, the, the cultural cringe and thought, no, we're not good enough. And we weren't either in those early pop days. The records were pretty terrible when you listen to them now. But they got a lot better in the 60s. Writing became important too, but artists started to write their own materials. I think it was Timothy Leary who said, you can always pick up your needle and move to another groove. And so that's what happened in the 60s. It moved to a lot of different grooves. I mean, at the start, as I said, bandstand was a major player. And, and it was also the rise, instrumental in the rise, I think bandstand, I think it'd be fair to say that, the rise of the female singer as well. Male dominated in the 50s, the rock and roll scene. In the 60s, less so, because you had people like Little Patty, Nolan Batley, Laurel Lee, Livia Newton-John, of course, Dinah Lee, Judy Cannon, Patsy Noble, Dinah Trask. They all became stars on TV and, and uh, on the circuit. And early on in the 60s, we had the folk revival with people like Gary Shearston and John Dengate, Judy Small... Nolene will remember a lot of these names, even though she was a musical snob. Um, <laughs> the Seekers, of course. And coexisting with that folk was also the healthy jazz scene. Remember, there was a bit of a trad jazz revival and also the, the uh, ordinary jazz with people like Don Burrows and Judy Bailey, Johnny Sangster. And, and both folk and jazz had, jazz had TV shows devoted to that form of music. And alongside of that was country which also had its own TV shows with people like Reg Lindsay and, of course, um, Slim Dusty. So, um, from those early days then, we, we moved to sort of the pop star stage of people like Normie Rowe and, uh, and Johnny Farnham, who started off doing an airline commercial, I think was his first actual recording. Normie Rowe was enormous. You had the influence of the Beatles coming through then and a lot of Australian groups who wanted to be Beatles. Groups like the Rajas, groups like the Easy Beats, groups like the Cicadas, there were so many of them. Masters Apprentices, the Twilights, all had that Beatles sound and we went through that for several years. Remember Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds? Which, you know, every aspiring group wanted to, to win the Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds. It started off being sponsored by everybody's, the magazine. And uh, the Crickets won the first year, not Buddy Holly's Crickets, an Australian group called the Crickets. Who remembers them? 
But the next winters, I think, were the Twilights, won the first of the Hoadley Battle of the Sounds. And anyone who came up through the 60s will probably remember uh, how important that was. We had the, the, the sounds that got a little bit heavier, probably as, as a result of the, the, the drug culture, and, and sounds got a little heavier towards the end. And, uh, and various Australian groups, oh, the loved ones, I forgot to mention them too. What a fabulous group they were. And a lot of these came out of, out of jazz. I mean, certainly um, uh, the loved ones came out of, uh, out of the jazz scene and, and a lot of the earlier players behind the, the lead singers and so on and the pop stars had a jazz background. So they moved into pop as they saw, well, that was the way you were going to earn a quid. Um, and so we, towards the end of the 60s, we had, that, uh, we had that heavier sound. Singles became longer. I started to tune out then. I had a brain that only could follow a song for two minutes 30. <laughs> Three minutes saw me out. And I've never really changed, you know. I remember James Valentine saying, as soon as there's a, as soon as there's a, chord, a chord change, uh, time to finish the, uh, finish the song. And I couldn't agree more. So there's a sort of a pencil sketch of, of, of the way music happened in the 60s. And with all, that, that, all those scenes and more, I don't think it's repeated. If you look at the 2000s and look at how many different styles of music is given popular airtime, I don't think you'll come near that number. So it was a really important era as far as music was concerned. Now, if somebody asked me, who should write a satirical novel about advertising? Someone with inside knowledge, someone who could write well, was extremely clever and amusing. I'd say, see if Hugh Mackay was available. Now, that, not my words, those words were spoken by another famous Australian who was also able to write well and was very clever and amusing, no person less than John Clark of Clark and Door fame. And I've no doubt that the National Library's own publisher and author, Susan Hall, had not dissimilar thoughts when she was considering who she should ask to compile a book about aspects of life in Australia in the 60s. Someone with inside knowledge, someone who actually lived through that period, someone who could write well, was extremely clever and amusing and gorgeous. <laughs> Sorry, Hugh. She must have thought, I wonder if Nolene Brown is available. And aren't we lucky to have both of them here this evening to engage in conversation about this cool, fab, far-out book, Living the 60s. Of course, for people like me, it brings back so many memories and not a few forgets. One of the best things about the book, apart from the cover... The pictures, the presentation, the scope and the script is, uh, hang on, what's left? Well, the fact that Nolene was there. It, it's quite subtle in the book, as you'll find out. She doesn't put herself forward all the time. She's, she's done the job, the research thoroughly, wrote the script, then had the pictures uh, matched up from the National Library here, from their fabulous collection here to match up. But she, uh, in an unobtrusive way, you know she was there. And nothing gripes me more than people who write about the pastimes who weren't there. It really annoys me, particularly about music, of course, which is a, a passion of mine. And you think, no, they weren't there. It wasn't like that at all. They've Googled something and had regurgitated somebody else's. But that's not true with this book. I mean, she met Jimmy Crothers, the famous boxer and also drank at his uh, fruit juice store in George Street I think it was one at Nolene that she did went in his afterlife as uh, in the health food uh, she met Jermaine Greer in Melbourne at Vadim's restaurant and had memories of her it's hard to get your head around this isn't it as Jermaine Greer in an early uni review dressed as a tube of toothpaste I mean, little insights like that. I mean, the fact that Nolene tried marijuana and inhaled. <laughs> and family, you know, her family, family lunch on Sundays. 
a lot of us will remember. Sunday lunches were really important for families. And guess what she had in her family? She had lamb roast, gravy, mint with the peas, crunchy potatoes and scorched pumpkin. Possibly followed by apple pie, Dad had a beer, Mum may treat herself to a shandy after she'd done all the serving. And then afterwards, it would be the family would get together and do the washing up, complete with the flicking of the, of the tea towels, which a lot of us remember. In fact, in our family, we, we started off with a dishwasher when our kids were young, and then we, and then we got rid of the dishwasher because we wanted the kids to, to know what it was like to have to wash and wipe up and to flick one another with tea towels. And when I read that in the book, I thought, oh, God, that's right, we did too. For clothes, we learned that uh, Nolene owned... I mean, this is, this is worse than my shoes. She, she had a safari suit. <laughs> I didn't know women had safari suits. I thought they were a male, uh, a male thing. And a little pair of black satin shorts and a floor-length cardi over the top. All right? That was the look. So there's all these little... There's a whole stack of them, these little insights, and you know, well, Nolene was really there. Now, just to finish off, I think the book provides a tremendous introduction to a decade... It intimated in so many ways things that were to come. I, I say an introduction because as I read it, I constantly found myself consulting Google to find out more about things that Nolene talks about or alludes to. For instance, I had no idea Mick Jagger's mother was born in Sydney and, yeah, and lived in Petersham, which was only a stone's throw, really, from where Nolene grew up. And as soon as I read that, I thought, stone me. And so I hit Google... And, and, uh, and read Chris Jagger, Mick's brother, account of, 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 the, of the family life. As they, uh, it, it's well worth reading, actually, Chris Jagger's report, because it you know, almost brings a tear to your eye. And when I read about Sigrid Thornton's mum chaining herself to the bar at the Regatta pub up in Brisbane, be, uh, protesting against not, women not being allowed in the public bar, I sort of remembered that. But the one again, once again, I, I went to the internet and, uh, and read up about that again. In fact, only two years ago, 50 years since it happened in 2015, I think, 50 years, she went back to the, to the pub and had a beer in the, in the bar. <laughs> At the same time, the bloke said, don't drink too much. <laughs> and what is she now? She's the adjunct associate professor of historical and philosophical inquiry. So... An amazing person. So for the curious mind, it's an excellent Kickstarter or it's equally useful as a source in itself for the wide range of life that it depicts in the era. Politics, arts, music, fashion, family life, our town and women in sport. So with those few words, I hope, I will... I was going to bring a little bottle of champagne and smash it over <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes, yes. Can I just ask my husband, have I got enough light, darling? <laughs> Where is he? Because he'll be the first to say, move into the light. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll stay in the shadows, I think. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, David, for that uh, wonderfully entertaining introduction to our conversation. Uh, and let me endorse... Uh, first of all, let me congratulate you on the book uh, and endorse what David has said about it. Uh, it's an absolute goldmine. If you were there, uh, it's a fascinating journey down that 
lane of memories. And if you weren't there, you'll scarcely believe what it was like for those who were. Uh, I, I read the book on the train going to Sydney. So if, you, if you're taking that trip, that's pretty much exactly how long it takes to read the book. <laughs> there uh, and back. And the... Sorry? There and back. No, I no, uh, well... Oh, I'd, you're I'd, a fast <laughs> reader. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, but the conductor... Uh, was checking the tickets as I began reading the book not far out of Canberra uh, and he saw the title and he said, ah, uh, Living the 60s, what a great title. It was better back then, I reckon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about whether it really was better back then Uh, and one of the... It certainly was different. It was different. I mean, whatever else you want to say about the 60s, it was very different from now. And here's one significant point of difference that may not uh, dawn on people until you start talking about it, and that's the role of the phone. Oh, the phone. Now, in the 60s, we didn't have a phone, Hugh. Uh, Our family lived without one. There was a... Uh, a booth up the street, up the top of Douglas Street, and you could go up there and make a phone call. With your two pennies. With two pennies, that's right. Absolutely. That's cheap, isn't it? Yes. But uh, we did get the phone round about the beginning of the 60s, and it had a whole piece of furniture to itself. (laughs) It it lived in the hall, and there was a, a piece of furniture that was sort of shaped like that, and the phone was on that side of you could sit there the phone was there phone book and a shelf underneath Mm. so the phone was it was such a wonderful thing we'd just pop in and have a look at it from time to time (laughs) (laughs) sometimes it even rang (laughs) and the woman next door didn't have the phone on so we would tap on the wall if somebody had a message for her and we'd bring her in to use the phone because she was a woman living on her own and we didn't like her to go up to the phone box in the dark. Mm-hmm. Well, our experience was almost the same. We, we acquired a phone. Uh, our neighbours on both sides did not have a phone uh, and they would come in and they would bring their two Chilling. pennies, oh, two pennies. <laughs> to <laughs> pay for the call. <laughs> uh, uh, it, was a, it was a little neighbourhood ritual. Indeed. U- using the phone of the person who was lucky enough to have a phone. Well, now, of course, not only has every home got a phone, but pretty well every pocket well, has, has got ha- a phone. Well, home phones are practically non-existent. Al- almost gone, That's yes. That's right. Yes. But, of course, there was a time in the 60s where the phone not only changed shape, it used to be the phone that sat on, a, on the table, but the headpiece went over the top. Then they had all of these amazing-looking uh, 21st-century-looking phones that were uh, shaped like that... And then they had a sort of uh, an earpiece on the top of them. Yes. They were very um, space-like. Yes, yes, and it was a form all, of sculpture. They were, mm. and they were in very many different colours. But not only that, the phone went into the kitchen on the wall. That was fant- That was really posh. Yes, if you had yes, a phone in the yes, kitchen. Yes. So uh, the phone was a very important thing for dating as well, because the phone in the hall that we had, uh, my brother's conducted all their relationships on the phone. They'd lie on the ground with their legs up on the, wa- on the uh, wall and they'd talk to their girlfriends for hours. Mm, mm. I was always quick on the phone. Mm, you know, yes, mm. I'll be there soon. That was mm, it. Mm. Now, if I wanted to talk to my girlfriend on the phone, I used to go to the phone box at the end of the street. Why uh, was which, that, Hugh? Well, why do you think? <laughs> <laughs> the phone was in a very public place. Any word uttered on the phone was yes. heard by the entire household. No, no, household. we were lucky. You yes. should have had a hall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, no, no such luxury. Uh, well, that's phones. Protests. Uh, it was a great decade of protests. Well, it was 60s. a decade of change and protest. Mm. I think the protesting probably happened uh, towards the end of the 60s when there were things to protest against. but Most particularly the Vietnam War, Vietnam, of course. of course, that was so. But don't forget that at that time, the baby boomers were coming of age. They were the students who... Uh, and they had a voice because there were so many of them. Mm. You know, almost 50% of the population was under, you know, 25 or whatever. Mm. So the boomers changed the 60s, in my view. Mm. And at the end... Uh, they protested against all sorts of 
important things, some of them frivolous, mm. but a lot of them important. And certainly, um, Vietnam was a biggie, and I was part of that um, protest movement. But they also protested against racism, mm. and they took the, that student bus that yes. went west of uh, New South Wales mm. to Moree and towns like that, and uh, they, they showed just the problems that Aboriginal people had in places like Moree, where the children were not allowed to use the... Black children were not allowed to use the local swimming pool. And uh, Charlie Perkins, of mm. course, led that mm. um, bus trip, and they just stayed there till the mayor said, well, all right, mm. you can swim. But mm. uh, also on that tour, uh, there was a truck that tried to run the bus off the road, not at Moree, but another town. Mm. So it was really, really a difficult time. So there was protest that was really worth something. But there was some fun in the protests as well. Uh, when certain badges were printed, one that I loved uh, when to protest against uh, young people being conscripted was draft beer, not students. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Uh, uh, the thing that I either had forgotten or never knew was that during the height of all the Vietnam protests, LBJ, the American president, came to uh, Australia. Uh, and you should tell us about the slogan that was devised by the local politicians oh, to mark yes. that visit. There were some fantastic slogans because uh, we all know that we cringed a bit with the all the way with LBJ. And I'm, I might tell you one story that you might have missed. There were placards with the people protesting uh, because uh, LBJ's wife was called Ladybird. And one of the placards said, all the way with LBJ, and the next one said, drop a turd on Ladybird. <laughs> <laughs> but, sorry, Hugh, what was yes. well, it? Was, <laughs> it was the politicians. Uh, oh, yes. Yes. Uh, yes, because they wanted to make Sydney nice for LBJ's tour. Uh, there's, there was a group, a management committee, to devise various signage and so on to welcome LBJ. So uh, the brief was, make Sydney gay for LBJ. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the procession was going up Oxford Street. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, of course, it was the decade of de decimal currency. Decimal uh, currency, we, we oh, did, yes. We and acquired there was a, the dollar. Oh, it was... There were people who used to ring up uh, radio announcers and say, can't they just wait till all the old people are dead? <laughs> 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 but uh, if you ever hear uh, Dollar Bill singing that song, it's actually um, Ross Higgins and Kev Goldsby doing those voices, and I worked with them in the Naked Vicar show, of course. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. There was a huge national debate about what, the unit of the currency would be called. Absolutely right. And there were... Um, Robert Menzies, Robert of course, Menzies wanted it to be called the Royal. The Royal, as he would. He was British to his bootstraps, as he said. Uh, but he loved the Royals. And there yes. were other people who said you could call it the Ming, after Robert, of course, Mingus. Uh, and I forget, there were, were a few others, and I think you're going well, to remind me. Well, one me. was uh, the Austral. And why didn't they call they, it the they, Austral? Well, they decided, they tried it out. In fact, Austral was very popular, Austral instead of dollar, until people realised if someone said, how much is it? And you'd say, oh, it's an Austral. Wouldn't have sounded so good. Um, now, television didn't arrive in Australia in the 60s. It arrived in 1956, of course, but it was still very new in the 60s and people made appointments to go into their neighbour's place to watch particular shows. The family would gather with the program guide out, uh, watching their favourite programs by appointment. There was no kind of accidental viewing No, well, I think I 60s. was on television before we got a television set yes, yes, into I'm our sure. house. Yes. Uh, I think my brother was still at school and my parents were afraid that it would take too much of his time and he should be doing his homework. So when I lived at home, we didn't have it. I left home in 1962 to flat at King's Cross and uh, that's when <laughs> I first, first started in television. But King's Cross wasn't like it is now. It was lovely, lovely old European village yes, in those days. Right. But uh, television was 
something that, you know, only a few people had mm. at, at the end of the 50s. Mm. It became popular because, as you say, people would line up outside the stores yes. and some people would take a chair, evidently, yes. <laughs> and watch it from outside the store. Yes. So in 1962, it was very... It was black and white, hard to believe, um, and it was pretty... Uh, we sort of made it up as we went along, but most of the shows we saw were either English or American. Mm. And uh, 1962 and thereabouts, it started to change. Changed before that with people like um, Graham Kennedy mm. being the wonderful uh, in Melbourne tonight, but it didn't really... In those days, it wasn't uh, Australia-wide. Each state chose what programs they wanted to put on. So Graham really didn't make it big in Australia, really till he made Blankety Blanks. Mm. But so we were really making it up as we went along. Mm. The Mavis Bramston show was supposed to be a satirical take on Australia, politics and uh, hard-hitting, and it, it started off to be that mm. in the early days. And uh, it was supposed to be about a woman called Mavis Bramston. And... She didn't exist. It was supposed to be... Because Australia had this uh, chip on its shoulder... Um, the cultural the cringe. The cultural cringe. Mm. We always had to have someone from overseas to head the show. So they'd say the writers decided we'd have a really bad performer from overseas to head the show. Uh, she wouldn't be able to sing, dance, tell a joke or anything else. And her name would be Mavis Bramston. <laughs> And uh, I went to a, a party where they were launching the show, which had Carol Ray, Barry Creighton and uh, Gordon Chater in it. I went along as uh, Barry Creighton's um, handbag. So uh, at the party, they dis discussed the woman, Mavis Bramston, and her failings and how they were going to deal with it in and out the first show. And uh, they said, but we don't know who's going to play Mavis and then they all looked at me and I said, oh, what? thank you very much. <laughs> and they said, oh, we're not talking about your lack of abilities. You're very new to the business. Nobody knows you, will disguise you, and then you can do the first show and then just go back to your normal life because we're going to flick Mavis after the first show. Well, that's not what happened, of course. Mavis stayed in the show, but not with me because I decided I didn't want to do commercials. I wanted to go to London and prove myself as an actor. So that's what I did. But the reason she was called Mavis Bramston, I spoke to the head writer about it, and this is my story. Other people have got different ones. Uh, he said, well, I was on a flight from Melbourne to Sydney and this air hostess was rude to me, and her name was Mavis Bramston. <laughs> so it was a writer getting his own back. <laughs> right. But it was the beginning of your sparkling television career. I mean, it, it was. Would... I mean, I didn't know what to do, Hugh, when mm. I, I had to do a song and dance. First of all, there was an interview like we're doing now, and I could do that because that was an actor's job. Then I was supposed to sing really, really badly. <laughs> Now, I can sing really, really badly, <laughs> having played Florence Foster Jenkins in the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, I didn't want to sing badly, but mm. I had to for the yes. character. Anyway, it's really quite amusing. So I, I did that. But I didn't know which camera to look at. And they yes. said, if a light's on, look at it. So <laughs> like a, you know, a rabbit in the yeah, headlights. In the headlights. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, television, phones, cars. I mean, again, it's hard to imagine now, particularly if you're in Sydney sitting in a traffic jam, it's hard to imagine that there was a time when you could cross the road quite easily in Sydney because there were so few cars. Uh, and really, mass car ownership only happened in the 60s. It uh, did. It began in the 50s, but it, it really did change the Australian way of life. I was watching a bit of footage about... Um uh, it was actually ASIO footage of mm. actors uh, going to Canberra, going to Parliament House, old Parliament House, uh, picketing for more Australian content on television. That's how long we're still doing mm. it, you know, mm. all those years ago. Mm. And there was a convoy of cars coming from Sydney and they were 
they all looked ancient. And uh, I was talking about them to my husband and he said, why were they such old cars? And I said, they were so expensive. Yes. These were cars were probably from the 40s yes. and they would have kept them forever. Yes. But then in the, in the 60s, there was more money. Everyone was you know, employed. And then, of course, we had our own Holden. Holden, yes. Yes. So the Holden came off the assembly line and, and people really took to it. The Holdens and, and, of course, the Fords, there was always a bit of an argument, which certainly came out in uh, a show that my husband, Tony Sattler, did, the Kingswood Country Show, yes, which yes. people might remember. Um, but, yes, car ownership, they became very big American cars instead of the rather squat English cars. And, of course, that changed a lot of things, Hugh, because mm. people could go in those cars to the... Drive-ins. Yes, the drive-ins. Yes, <laughs> and it's probably the reason everyone got married so early. <laughs> but, uh, you know, people would go to the drive-in in their pyjamas and, mm. and they'd watch the movies and sometimes have to put the windscreen wipers on if there was a locust plague. And I'm sure everyone in this room would have uh, driven away from... With the speaker in the car. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, yes, it did change everything. I think especially for dating, mm. groups of young people going out and snogging in those cars. Yes. War yes. must have been worrying for their parents. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And there's been no real replacement for that, unfortunately. It used to be the gas box in my mother's day. (laughs) (laughs) Sit on the gas box. (laughs) Well, it did did, uh, make the drive-in possible. Of course, it also made motels possible. Motels arrived in the 60s. It did. And, of course, before motels, people would have had to stay in not particularly great... This is in suburbs and Mm. so on. Not particularly great... um, Hotels. hotels yes. There were some quite posh ones in Sydney, but in the uh, in the suburbs around it. But when the motel came with a swimming pool, with television, yes. it was black and white, of course, in the yes. beginning. Sometimes and your heating, own bathroom. heating, yes. the own bathroom and the little hole where your breakfast came in. <laughs> Fantastic. So we, yes. we all loved the motel, and of course that was another thing where people could go and pretend they were married, I suppose. Yes, yes. 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 Because we're talking about a time when the pill became available. Yes. And uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people signing in as Mr and Mrs who weren't really. Yes. But I think, Hugh, that's one of the big things that happened in the 60s, was the pill came in quite early. And uh, it was front page of the newspapers... The pill, capital T, capital P, as if it was going to be the end of the world. Men were going to be irrelevant and women were going to all turn into nymphomaniacs and all sorts of terrible things were happening when, in fact, what happened was people were in charge of their own sexuality. They decided when they were going to have their children, um, how many they were going to have, mm. if, a, if a wife could continue working. It made everything so much better mm. for everybody. And I, as a young person, I might have inhaled as well, but <laughs> um, as a young person, I went on the pill. Um, before marriage, shockingly, but I thought um, I, this was a really good idea. Yes. Uh, I didn't speak to my mother about it. I spoke to my girlfriend, Gwenda, and we both went along to the doctor and said, we're going to get married. And it's true, we were. Not necessarily immediately, but <laughs> <laughs> we got the pill. We had to make sure that the religion of the doctor would allow this. So yes. he wrote the uh, prescriptions for us. And then we had to go to some... Uh, some suburb a long way away where no one knew us to get the prescription written down. But before that, uh, you know, it was really difficult for a married couple. Uh, You'd either had abstinence or um, the rather catchy rhythm method, which wasn't really making love to music. (laughs) (laughs) No, nor was it really a contraceptive method. It wasn't at all, no. So it did change Mm. everything. And Mm. it, it was probably... Women weren't allowed to keep their jobs at the beginning of the 60s if they worked um, as a teacher, for example. Anything in the public service, that's right. They would have to resign once they married. Uh, So the pill probably changed that and women were eventually allowed to keep their jobs. At one stage, they could keep their jobs 
but they would lose all their benefits, yes. holiday pay and so on. Yes, it's, it's only the 60s. It is. Uh, not that long ago. It but isn't. If a, woman, if a married woman wanted to travel overseas in the 60s, she had to get her husband's permission. She did indeed. But if a married man wanted to travel overseas, he, he did not have to time. get his wife's yeah. permission. Yes. Yeah. But the, the advent of the pill, as you say, did change a lot of uh, features of, of Australian life, but of course, it, it, primarily the birth rate. I mean, at the beginning of the 60s, we, we had a birth rate of 3.5 babies per woman. Yes. Today, we have a birth rate of 1.7 yes. uh, babies per woman. Uh, we get little blips every now and then, and people say, oh, it's a baby boom. Mm. Well, it's not a baby boom. No. That was a baby boom, which ended in 1961 or began to taper off in 1961. Um, but I think then, uh, with the advent of the pill, no one could have foreseen what a dramatic effect that would have on the birth rate mm. and on the liberation of women more broadly than just sexually uh, and, in the end, on our patterns of marriage and divorce. I think that, that was the catalyst for absolutely fundamental social change. Well, I also think uh, the 70s changed the divorce rate as well because uh, you had that no guilt. Yes, the, know, the because, new marriage act. Uh, that's in right. the 60s and 50s, people had to be uh, had to arrange to be caught in one of those motels. Yes, with yes. A, a, you know, and being photographed being, by a being private investigator. And sometimes yes. those photographs would appear on the front of a terrible newspaper called The Truth. Do you yes, remember that? Yes. So it was really, really difficult. Yes, people yes. had to stay married and... They didn't want to, and it was miserable. Yes. Oh, yeah. that's right. That's right. Uh, by the way, when I, when I hear people talking about today as the post-truth era, I always think back to the Truth newspaper. <laughs> that was the post-truth era <laughs> right back then. Uh, we should say a word about politics while we're talking about the changes to the Marriage Act. Um, I mean, we're used to a sort of revolving door of prime ministers. The 60s, on a much smaller scale, but was a bit like that. We did have some nasty accidents involving we Prime Ministers. We did. Well, we, we had Robert Menzies for a long, long time. At, at one stage I thought, oh, Robert Menzies has been Prime Minister for my entire life. And when I was 21, I voted for the first time, hoping that I might get rid of Robert Menzies. I know he may have still a few fans. There are a lot of people say, who mightn't have voted for him, but they'd all say, he has such a nice speaking voice. But anyway, he decided he'd been in too long too and he, his, uh, I think he realised he wasn't as popular as before. Yes. Um, so he decided to resign and then, of course, we got uh, Harold Holt who was quite a, uh, quite a larrikin which we mm. didn't really know. I think flamboyant know. is probably yes, the he, polite word. he was flamboyant. Mm. We didn't know till after his death. And how we could lose a Prime Minister is remarkable, mm. isn't it? I mean, look in America. If he'd gone swimming, there would have been thousands of people with him. He wasn't alone. It is a remarkable thing that he actually did disappear and there are all sorts of rumours mm. that he was uh, uh, committed suicide. One, that he was... Uh, he was taken by the Chinese, the Chinese in a submarine. submarine yes, and yes. That later on, when his wife, uh, Zara, was interviewed about this, she said, oh, don't be ridiculous. He didn't even like Chinese food. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, but it is remarkable, as you say. I mean, to, lo to lose a Prime Minister yes, was fairly, yes. fairly remarkable. Uh, and it was the 60s, of course, where the tasteless, a particular municipal council, particularly tasteless, Municipal Council in Victoria named the municipal pool the Harold Holt Swimming they did, Pool. They did. <laughs> I think uh, it might still be called that. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, he was replaced by John Gorton, of course. He was. Uh, the only Prime Minister in our history to have voted himself, himself out of out. office. That's right. Um, he was also a flamboyant character, yes, of course, yes. um, and had a relationship with his assistant, which was... Uh, again, put him under a cloud, which may have been one of the reasons he voted himself out. But <laughs> yes. I, I do remember he got into a bit of strife um, because he was a bit, uh, a bit like, um, a bit like a 
an emperor. I think he was. Yes. He ruled it a bit like an emperor. Yes. And he didn't really consult. Yes. And that's why he was unpopular. Yes. Mm. But no one ever said politics was boring. It wasn't boring. Uh, in the no. 60s, no. And it w at least we hung on to them for a bit longer. There wasn't Not the like same sense of despair or disillusionment that there is now. I also think there was... A People uh, looked up to their leaders mm. and they, uh, they just went along with what the leaders... I think that's the difference. I think they led. Mm. Mm. Well, now, it's almost time for the audience to have a say, but uh, before we, before we uh, sur surrender to the audience, um, uh, fashion. We haven't said anything about fashion. Uh, you've made some extremely... I mean, there are wonderful, wonderful fashion shots uh, in the book, including some of Nolene, uh, but... Uh, you made a really interesting point that in the 60s we really saw the beginning of androgyny in fashion, uh, perhaps led by blue denim jeans or flares. At the end of the 60s, the be beginning of the 60s, we all dressed like um, characters from Mad Men, the series, uh, beautiful skinny skirts, pencil skirts, um, cardigans, twin sets, high heels... We'd run for the bus in our high heels. We'd go to town in gloves and matching bags and yes. shoes and all of that stuff. And, by, and girdles, we had to wear girdles whether we needed them or not. I've had to explain to people yes. what step-ins and roll-ons and things were because they've no idea. And I said, well, if you don't know what they are, have a look at the football players because they all wear them under their shorts yes. these days. Yes. So the corset makers are still making a living, evidently. Yes. But fashion changed so much, Hugh, um, from, that, from those early days to the end of the 60s when we just let it all hang out. Yes. No more girdles. We'd thrown them away. We'd had the shift. We'd had Shrimpton. Mm -hmm. at the, the Male Observer discovered by the end of the 60s for the first time that women had two buttocks. <laughs> uh, the, the girdle had kept this disguised for all this. And now, of course, you can buy a buttock or a couple of buttocks if you're a bit flat there. They're, they're available. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway, at the end of the uh, decade, people were heavily into denim, as you say, but tie-dyeing their own yes. stuff and um, living off the smell, the smell of an oily rag and wearing it as well. Big shoes... Um, not a lot of leather, because I think we're, a lot of us were vegetarian then, yes, and uh, yes. we didn't like to harm animals. Yes. All our furs had to disappear, of course, right. who'd yes. have a fur. Yes. Um, but there were lots of floppy hats, flares, as you say, denim and double denim and, and love beads, and men and women looked the, sa the same. As I often say, men could get into your pants. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, it certainly was a decade that changed Australia. Uh, um, you, you could pick on any decade and say how significant it was. I mean, the 70s was significant in a lot of different ways. Um, but perhaps the 60s, uniquely, really did change Australia. It certainly changed you and it changed me. Mm. Uh, the whole research business exploded mm. in the 1960s. Um, so I, I, I feel enormous affection for the decade and it was a great pleasure to be taken back courtesy of your book. Thank you for sharing it with me here. Thank you, Nolene. So... <laughs> and the book's just as entertaining as that, even more so, perhaps. <laughs> so, uh, and of course it'll be available in the, in the foyer afterwards with uh, Nolene doing the signing. Are you going to sign it too, Hugh? No, no, I'm not going to sign this book, but I noticed got they've got of some own. of my books out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, How I'm strange not you should it's mention Nolene's that, night. <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, it's, uh, as Hugh said, it's over to, uh, to you now. If anyone would like to ask a question, please uh, raise your hand and we'll organise for a, for a uh, microphone to be, to be placed near you. Any questions of, of uh, Nolene or, uh, or Hugh? They're always they, shy. They are, Too aren't they? shy. There's one. What were your experiences like in public transport when you were going to... 
Yes, I've got it. I think I've got a bit in my book. I wrote a lot of stuff that got cut. So I might have... Uh, we used to catch the train, of course, and change at Albury. <coughs> um, but I was lucky enough to be one of the early people to fly. As a young kid, I went flying. I, I really liked that. I was lucky in that respect. But as we were talking about cars, and... I, our family never owned a car, like the phone. <laughs> um, I had a bike uh, and I used to walk everywhere. And the fitness, I think, that comes from all those years of walking, and I'm talking walking miles and miles, kilometres, um, yes. but uh, I would depend on a male friend to drive me. Mm. Um, sometimes they drove you places you didn't want to go. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Uh, uh, but the, but the, uh, the train thing was interesting, the yes. changing the train between Sydney and Melbourne, changing the train at Albury, that all changed during the 60s, of course, with the with single gauge uh, track right. and the launch of the Southern Aurora, yes. which was our most sensational train. It was. Sleeping now retired. Nice. I like a bit of train travel, mm. like you. Absolutely. Yes. Wasn't, oh, sorry, it wasn't sleazy, was it? It was a village. The cross in the 60s was, was absolutely delightful. In the early part of the 60s, it was... Uh, when it was first, of course, when the, first, the cross was first um, inhabited by white people, quite wealthy people built houses there, beautiful houses, and a lot of those big, beautiful houses were turned into rooming houses in the 50s. So a lot of artistic people went there to live and they'd live there in a room with a, um, a gas ring. They lived very, very modestly. But in the 60s, they'd moved on a bit from that and there were small apartments. But mostly the people who lived around where I lived in Kings Cross, Potts Point area, were elderly European people who lived quietly and just went from shop to shop to buy their delicatessen items. Now, that's the first time I met uh, a shop called a delicatessen was in the 60s. You buy, you go to your um, fishmonger, uh, fruit and veg. It was just like a little village. And people looked after each other. There were, of course, a few um, ladies of the night once the hotels uh, came in. Probably mm. the Hilton mm. um, attracted them. And they would look after you as well. Mm. Um, it was a lovely place to live. The only time I ever had a, a difficult moment was when somebody broke into my apartment, which was on the ground floor. But that was during the R&R &R period where King's Cross changed forever. The American serviceman. Yes, yes, that's right. But I do remember it well, we were talking about music, when the Beatles came and they wanted to go to the Hilton and stay in the Hilton. Management said, oh, no, we can't have the Beatles here. Uh, all our other uh, patrons will be uh, disrupted. So they put them in the hotel across the road from there, which wasn't nearly as flash. But, of course, all the people <laughs> went to the Hilton to have a look at the hotel across the road. So they are all... It, it, it didn't work. I have to say, my, my experience of King's Cross in the early 60s was that's where I worked. Yes. The ABC at yes, that time had offices in 23 buildings around Sydney and yes. the audience research department was located in a, in a space on top of the Woolworth supermarket well. yep. in, uh, in, uh, in King's Cross. Yes. So it was a very ordinary kind of it place was, to proper shops. live and mm. work. That's right. Mm. Well, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Disconnectedness with adolescents these days, technology, privacy, depression, those kinds of things. What do you think the 60s offers adolescents today? Were they to um, look back at that time and, and that what might they see then that maybe they don't have now? I think the, the family unit was probably um, tighter in those days. Um, I think we were brought up uh, quite strictly and yet we were allowed our freedoms. I was, for instance, very... My parents supported everything that I wanted to do. 
but we still had to uh, live by their rules and we'd been brought up with those. Um, so I, I don't know if... I don't have children, so I can't say how kids are brought up today. Uh, and you as a high school principal would know more about that than I do. But all I can say is in the 60s, we knew that we had to behave. Yes, could I just add a, add a comment yeah. to that? Uh, I think the, the information technology revolution, the combination of the information technology revolution and the sustained high divorce rate means that the current crop of adolescents are actually having a much, mentally, emotionally, are having a much, much tougher life than the kids of the 60s had. Partly, as Nolene says, because families were much more stable than they are now. 10% of marriages ended in divorce in the 60s. Between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages will end in divorce. So a lot of kids are part of the fallout uh, from that. But the information technology revolution, the great paradox of the contemporary world that appears to be connecting us but is actually making it easier than ever to stay apart, mm -hmm. means a lot of these kids, though they're online all the time, are actually very lonely very isolated. Mm. The fact that we're talking about an epidemic of depression among adolescent Australians is something that in the 60s, if someone had said that's what it's going to be like in the 21st century, we couldn't have imagined a society like that, and yet it's the central reality of contemporary Australia. Yes. Um, yeah, sorry, sorry. Je sorry, just hang on, because uh, Sharon's on her way. Thanks. Looking back on it now, it seems to be a decade when there was all of a sudden a much greater opportunities for women uh, opening up in areas like well, your own success, for example. I just as a woman uh, you know, breaking into industry and things like at that time, I just would like you to comment on whether the 60s was the start of you know, an, a, a much greater opportunity for women to, to in so many areas of, of life. Of course it was a time of greater opportunities for women because at the beginning of the decade, most, most women and men married very, very young. Mm. Their expectations were marriage, children uh, and then grandchildren. Can I just inject a yeah. statistic there? 25% yeah. um, of women mm. in the 60s were married by the age of 20. Yes, mm. that's right. Tell that to today's 20-year-old yeah. women and they turn white with fright. <laughs> mm. Well, that's right, because a 20-year-old now, I mean, that's, uh, they're babies now because mm. they, they live at home till they're 42. <laughs> 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 but uh, right. it, it certainly changed everything. You know, there are photographs in this book about, uh, of, of young couples going to the altar uh, and they, they look like babies, absolute babies. And you think, uh, you know, this is why I said the pill was such a game changer, because um, that's a very, very long time to stay married to somebody. Uh, and if, you know, if a, if a couple were in love and they wanted to marry, they wanted to have relationship, a proper relationship, they didn't actually have to get married mm. and they didn't have to start so young. Mm. They, they'd have time to prepare, time to think about a career and time to think about saving for the quarter-acre block or mm. whatever they wanted to build their house on. So mm. I think it, it was more than just sexual liberation. It was many, many other liberations. Mm. It was the decade in which Betty Friedan's book, uh, The Feminine Mystique, yeah. uh, was published and that was a, an absolute mind-blowing read yeah. for women who were trapped at home, bored out of their minds, living on APC yes, powders and Vincents yeah. and so yeah. on to try and relieve uh, this absolute vague, boredom. vague sense that something mm. was wrong with their lives, vague headache, vague mm. lassitude. Uh, suddenly, uh, the idea that a woman is a person too Yes, with and a, a life woman is entitled own. to have her own life, her yeah. own identity, etc. That really, uh, in Australia, only became a mass movement in the 60s. It did, and that's mm. probably towards the end of the 60s mm. as well. So it isn't all that long ago. No, it's not. And no. the sky hasn't fallen in. 
Mind you, it's still a glass ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, your book reminds us that the very first female bank teller appeared in the 1960s too. Yes, that's right. A woman obviously couldn't handle money. <laughs> but <laughs> during my research, I was astonished to find that uh, bank tellers, I don't know if this lady bank teller had to do it, you had to go to uh, shooting practice because there was a gun mm. underneath and, you know, imagine, imagine if it started shooting. <laughs> 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 yeah. Look, we might have time for just one. Oh, yes, way up the back. <coughs> Thanks, Pete. Last question. Thanks for your talk. I certainly wasn't there, but it looks like it was great fun. Um, I'm interested in what you think the influence of the Cold War and um, the spectre of the bomb and like the, the tide of communism coming down Asia might have had a little impact on the day-to-day -day <coughs> life in the 60s. I only heard a bit of the question. We're talking about the Cold War. Yeah. Well, of course, that was uh, Menzies' favourite thing, wasn't it? Uh, the reds under the beds and commos and whatever. And uh, that was the funny thing about that uh, demonstration in 1956 that I was talking about, that uh, the actors going to Parliament House were all accused... The reason ASIO was taking a film of them, they were all accused of being communists because the Communist Party supported their bid for more Australian content. That was enough. There was, a, there was an ASIO mole planted in the ABC. I was working uh, at Channel 2, working for the ABC, uh, in a show called Would You Believe? And after the show, we used to go to the uh, 729 Club, which was the three television stations, 7, 2 and 9, before Channel 10. Mm. And... Uh, Two men came in while we were having a drink after the show with the cast and crew, and they were wearing suits, possibly hats, which was most unusual in that sort of club at that time. And uh, one of them uh, called me over, I must have been buying a drink or something, and said, is that Frank Hardy with you? And I said, yes, Frank Hardy's in the show with me. And they said, oh, can you tell us about Frank Hardy? And I said, well, he's in the show with us. <laughs> and he's a writer and he's written this and he's written that. What they were trying... They were two ASIO operatives and they were trying to find out what I knew about uh, Frank Hardy because he was accused of being a communist. And at one stage he possibly was, I'm not sure. But uh, because of that, uh, we were all rushing... There were, Russians under the beds everywhere in those days. It was a fascinating time. Mm. Yes, can I just add a comment to, to that, that? I think Nolan mentioned earlier the swathe cut through Australian society by the baby boomers, uh, which is very true. I mean, they changed everything, and they're still changing everything. Our attitudes to the elderly are rapidly changing under the because influence of the Because we're the elderly. Baby. That's right. <laughs> Uh, but the, the, I think the central feature of the baby boomers, which has been so influential on them and therefore on the rest of us, uh, is the, the dual influence of the Cold War that you've reminded us about. They lived permanently with the possibility of nuclear annihilation. Uh, MAD, M-A-D, mutually assured destruction. This was the, this was the buzzword. That was, that was in the, lodged in the psyche of the baby boom generation, and it coexisted with this extraordinary explosion in material prosperity mm. in the 50s and 60s. So th this was the, they were sort of living in a paradox. On the one hand, we've got this escalator carrying us upwards into endless prosperity and material comfort and so on. On the other hand, we could all be blown to smithereens in, in the nuclear holocaust at any minute. So, as a generation, they became generationally impatient. Um, partly why they were marrying so young, etc., but also uh, why they were in a rush to do everything. Their generational catch cry was, we're not here for a long time, we're here for a good time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's still characteristic. I mean, they've become... Paul Keating had to invent compulsory superannuation because baby boomers refused to save because buried in their brain somewhere was this thought, we we'll all forever. be history. Mm. Yeah. 
I can I just add a, sorry? We've no, all got again now with Mr Trump. <laughs> yes. yes. I was well, just about to say that, that, I, um, yeah. that in, in, in uh, view of uh, Mr Trump and, and North mm. Korea, I, I dug out a record the other day uh, and, and it's called When the Bomb Falls. And it came out at the end in 1959, but it, it, uh, it, it comes complete with a booklet of instructions as, as to what you should do. I mean, it's a real hoot. Two booklets inside. I don't know what you were supposed to do when the bomb was falling. You'd race to your record player, put the record on, <laughs> and and give it a quick listen so you knew what to do. But it really is a, is a hoot. So that sort of thing uh, ties in really well. Look, unfortunately, we've, uh, we've, we're on a time limit, so I'll invite Susan back to the microphone. Thank you. Thank you, David, and thank you, Hugh and Nolene, for a fascinating uh, discussion. And I'd like to extend my personal thanks to Nolene for writing the book for us because she is such a delightful author to work with. Thank you very much. So, unfortunately, we've run out of time, um, but I hope you can join us for refreshments upstairs. And Nolene's kindly agreed to sign copies of the book, which is available at a 10% discount tonight. And I just have a little bit of 1960s trivia for you uh, to conclude the evening. Uh, 2017 also marks the 50th anniversary of the publication of the novel Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay. And to celebrate this, the library is going to be hosting a special event on Saturday, uh, the 28th of October, examining the creation of the book and the legacy it has left for future generations and we're going to have a dramatised reading. So I do hope you can join us. And a final thank you to all of you for coming along this evening, and we look forward to seeing you upstairs in the foyer. Thank you. Thank you.